What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the Pit Limiter Podcast. It is episode number seven. I'm your host, Zach Buchanan. Joining me, as always, John Poole Third. What is up, buddy? Oh, not too much, Zach. How's it going? Ah, pretty good. Pretty good. We had a pretty interesting week in racing, not just on the track, but off the track as well, which leads us into our first segment, Stop and Go. John, what do you got for us? Oh, let's see here. We're going to start off with a sponsorship signing with NASCAR. Uh, Geico and NASCAR have announced a low seven-figure annual rights fee to sponsor NASCAR as the official insurance provider of NASCAR. Kyle Busch, who's been in the headlines a lot lately, extends his career win total in the NASCAR Gander Outdoors Truck Series. With his win at Martinsville on Saturday, that total is now up to 54 in the Truck Series. NASCAR announces qualifying changes for Texas. So, starting at Texas, if you do not set a lap in a round, you will be disqualified. Uh, And the time from the previous round will be used as your time. If you block pit road, you will also incur a penalty, such as disallowing your team from posting a speed or disqualifying your actual time. This is NASCAR's attempt to keep multiple round group qualifying while uh, penalizing such actions as Auto Club. It was a big weekend for IndyCar racing. They went to Circuit of the Americas for the first time, and rookie Colton Herta, in his third race in the series, became the youngest IndyCar winner in history, the son of Brian Herta. 18 years, 11 months, and 25 days. Speaking about IndyCar, we got some broadcasting news coming from NBC. Former Indy regular Danica Patrick will join Mike Tirico as a host of the Indianapolis 500. So it was announced in the past week that Ross Chastain, who has driven for a multitude of teams this season and has actually done a pretty good job bouncing around between teams, it was announced that he is going to drive for Colic Racing once again in the Xfinity Series at Talladega. He also drove for the team at Daytona. Uh, Some news from former ARCA champion Austin Terrio. He is currently in the works of finalizing a deal to run a second go-fast racing car either later this year or possibly next year. So this week, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is celebrating 110 years of existence. 1909 was when the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was founded. So here's your weekly Rufus update. Uh, We finally have some type of information of what it actually is. So it seems to be a sort of race of champions uh, where you get points based on your perspective series and perspective events in your series. Um, Only the top drivers in the world are invited to said Rufus. I don't know what to call it per se, but we also kind of figured out who was behind the scenes of Rufus. It seems to us now that J.R. Hildebrand could be possibly running this whole Rufus uh, parade. So it's hard to say uh, any more information about Rufus. 
it's interesting that you mentioned J.R. Hildebrand. It was actually recently announced that once again he'll be competing in the Indianapolis 500 as a one-off. He'll be driving once again for Dry Reinbold Racing. Uh, former Roush Fenway Racing Development driver and best iRacer ever, Ty Majeski joins Chad Bryant Racing for a limited schedule in the ARCA Menard Series, starting at Charlotte Motor Speedway. So Brad Keselowski put on a clinic Sunday afternoon in the Monster Energy Cup race at Martinsville, leading 441 laps out of 500 take home the victory. It was his second win of the season. He also swept the stages. Our resident Canadian crew chief, Cole Pern, commented on the current NASCAR package. He says, quote, I can't think of any racing series anywhere in the world or in history where increasing corner speeds has produced better racing, yet here we are, in reference to NASCAR's current rules package. So Chris Knight recently reported that Brad Keselowski said he's okay on sponsorship for 2019. It looks like that two-car is, is good to go for 2019, but in terms of 2020, it looks like they need some sponsorship. Uh, no official word on what sponsorship they'd be losing, but a lot of speculation is that they'd be losing Miller. Uh, Clint Boyer, outspoken driver in the paddock, uh, mentioned possibly tires were a factor in the results of yesterday's race. He said, quote, Oh, and if you're looking for an exceptionally good tire that will possibly outlast your car, please go buy all of the remaining stock of the left side tires we raced yesterday. In reference to Martinsville, meaning that the tire was so hard it would not even wear. So a little bit of information about the Generation 7 car, the car that NASCAR has in the works to debut in 2021 in the Monster Energy Cup Series. Motorsport.com actually reported that there's the potential that we could actually double in the amount of OEMs that we have in the series. So up to six manufacturers in the series, which would be incredible. To conclude Stop and Go and transition into our first discussion point this evening, uh, the 2020 schedule will be announced this week. Uh, we have some rumors uh, coming from Adam Stern and from Racetrack's website. So first rumor that we have is, is that Atlanta could be moving to a March 1st race date, along with Las Vegas's second date could be moving to October. Uh, the West Coast Swing could return back to Daytona, moving Atlanta actually to a possible fifth race, not a March 1st event. Could see a doubleheader at Pocono that see two cup races held in the same weekend would actually help condense the schedule, which could move it closer or even into October. Also, there are talks that Phoenix or ISM Raceway could host the finale. Um, and one more rumor about the 2020 schedule is that the traditional July the 4th Daytona race could be moved to the regular season finale in September. Gosh. So with all those proposed changes, I want to know what your thoughts are, Zach, about some of these changes that Mr. Stern is reporting. Well, I mean, Adam Stern is, is fairly, he's a pretty respectable reporter. So the fact that he's <laughs> reported that these are a possibility, it really says that NASCAR has considered this, which is kind of scary. Uh, first off, why they would ever move the J July Daytona race, I don't know. Why it's, why it's not 
on July 4th in the morning. I don't know. Uh, to move it in September makes no sense at all. To make it the regular season finale just kind of takes the the legitimacy from the regular season away from it because it's just like a a wild card, you know, last chance, let's do something stupid to try to make the playoffs. You know, that's that's all I'm getting from it and it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Having ISM Raceway as the finale doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh I I get the renovations that they made to that track would probably be suitable for a cup series finale, but I also think it'd be stupid to have that race as a finale because look at the last two to three races. I mean, you can even go back as far as uh, 2011, 2012 in the Xfinity series, uh, the fall race is there. All, something stupid tends to happen every time. I mean, even 2014 uh, Newman putting Larson in the wall to get the final playoff spot to go to Miami. It happens a lot, and just imagine the chaos that happens on those restarts as the finale. You know, you don't need any unnecessary drama in the finale, especially if it's involving a championship contender. I mean, look at last last year's race alone. Okay, 2018 fall ISM race. One wreck alone, which took out Hamlin, Kurt Busch, and Chase Elliott, all three of which... We're trying to make the championship four. So, I mean, that right there, I mean, and it's not just one wreck, it's several. I mean, look back at Elliot Sadler, two years in a row at Phoenix, lost the championship because of that race alone. Yeah, exactly. Um, we were having a discussion in another group about all these possible changes uh, and such like that. I'm just going to go down through the way I listed them to see what I think about them. So the Atlanta-Las Vegas date changes, great. I, I agree that Atlanta should be moved to a warmer date. Definitely. And I believe that Las Vegas's fall date should be moved to a cooler date because 100 degrees is not viable for, for Cup Series veterans. 150 degrees, that's going to kill them. Yeah. Well, uh, and think about it this way. Okay, so you, you, they run a harder tire now in the Cup Series. You know, you run in a harder tire... at. at at Atlanta, when it's cold out, you're not getting any grip. No, there's no heat going into that tire. Exactly. So, so oh. it's not going to wear. Um, I, I kind of mentioned this. To me, ISM is probably like the 10th venue I would choose as a season finale. Just racing is meh, locations. It's not a destination spot you want to go to. It's a hassle for the teams to travel to the West Coast for the finale. And again, we talk about the awards banquets. We just moved it to Nashville. Wouldn't it make sense to be in a southern-based uh, state, uh, state? It would make the most sense. But to me, you made the mention of the, the changes. The only reason I see Phoenix being the season finale now is it's just a financial-based move. I imagine that the almost $300 million investment they've made in Phoenix over the last five years, that either this was the plan all along, or that their payback, payback tools or payback period and their financial tools are all showing negative. So the only way to generate more revenue for Phoenix is to give it a is to give it a a, a championship finale race. Now, uh, now with Pocono, love the idea of the double. Yes, definitely. 
They don't need two dates. But the question I have now is, is what's going to happen with the Xfinity series and the truck series at Pocono? My guess is, is that they're going to move to another Matco track, South Boston. That's, I could see that. That would actually be a, a big improvement. One other thought that I had is that they'd uh, take one of the weekends that you would have run Cup and do that as a standalone weekend for Trucks, Xfinity, and maybe even throw in their ARCA, or what's going to be the Elite Series, or whatever they're going to call it. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. You know, I did not mention uh, the July the 4th thing. I was just so dumbfounded by uh, NASCAR even thinking that was a viable option. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) You know, they want to scream legitimacy all the time, but ideas like that, to me, they better be just ideas because they don't make any sense whatsoever. The TV people are screaming this. Probably, oh, it would be great for ratings and this and that. I've heard, I've heard rumors now that we could see a F1 style break in the middle of August per the request of NBC because of the Olympics. I've, I, I've heard, I don't know. I've just heard so many different mind-boggling rumors regarding schedule. It's not even remotely funny. To me, I compiled a series of tracks that would be suitable for a finale okay i just wanted to let this out here i calculated fairground speedway charlotte atlanta texas homestead vegas fontana sonoma atlanta or and you uh, homestead and then you could throw in road atlanta and sebring because they fall under the imsa banner you could say that but ism no i'm just the whole schedule changes, about half of it makes me happy, the other half of it makes me want to throw something up against the wall, because NASCAR, they take two steps forward and four steps back, like they always do. Yeah, I mean, think, think about it like this. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to make ISM Raceway the finale. We're going to move Daytona to September. But hey, Atlanta's not going to be 40 degrees, you know? Like, it. it What's the appeal to it? I, I really want to know. What's the appeal to run in Daytona not in July? Is it too hot? Is, no. It, I mean, the... tell me tell me what makes sense to move a race weekend that has been in that same time period every single year. With the exception of 98, and that had a good reason of not occurring. That, there was that wildfires, point. weren't there? There was wildfires in, in Florida. got moved to October. Now, they'll argue, well, it's been there in the past, in October. Yeah, that was caused by wildfires. It wasn't a, a sure-off thing. Yes, it has been July the 4th every single year since Daytona International Speedway came to existence. That weekend, I should say, not the exact date. It they, should be on the 4th, though. It should be on the 4th, but uh, could argue either way. It'd make yeah. good TV because, yeah, it's... Something everyone, to wake up to. Something to wake up to. Everybody's home. It's, you know, there's that, but do you want to have people's families and such like that with a sporting event on the 4th? That, that's the question you ask. They used to do it. I think yeah. if you're talking a, a nostalgia appeal that has a nostalgia appeal 
you know, with all the all the people that are saying, "Oh, I wish it was like the good old days," you know, you you appeal to that a little bit. You know what I mean? It might you might lo- lose some people on the back end just from uh, you know changing it so it's on the morning of the fourth. But at the same time, you know, I think you draw some interest for it as well. You won't lose as many people as you would moving that date off of July the 4th weekend. Yeah. We have saw this before. What happened to Darlington whenever they said, we're going to get rid of your Labor Day weekend date because of FERCA? Literally fans left in droves because that was, it's a crown jewel. It was known for its Labor Day weekend. It had been on that date every year since the inception of Darlington at the time. 54 years. With this, it's going on 60 years. It's been on July the 4th weekend. So imagine the Coke 600 not being Memorial Day weekend. Well, that's the thing. The, rumor has, the rumors state that I've read, I'm not, I'm not going to say my source, that only the Daytona 500, the Coke 600, and the Southern 500 are safe in their dates. Everything else is up for debate. I, the one thing I think you could make out of that that's positive, that, that means that you could condense the schedule from there. You could, I mean, and not just dropping second dates that tracks have, but I mean, just making it shorter. Because uh, I think it's definitely fair to say that 36 races is too much. Yeah, I, think, I, would... I think originally it was like, hey, you know, uh, people love NASCAR. Having it on every week's great. TV ratings are good at the time. The attendance is good at the time. You're raking in money. Of course, this is like 90s, early 2000s when you're increasing the schedule like they are. But now it's you're begging people to watch. You know, I'd say 30 races should be the ceiling. Honestly, I, I would disagree. Give, with give, the, give the teams would... a break, because uh, I mean, it's that's a long. I mean, it's not just 36 weeks. You've also got, you know, the the weeks leading up to that you're in Daytona. You got the Clash. Um, you've got the All Star Weekend as well. So that's at least 38 weekends out of the year that well, you're you also have at the track. It's like that are there. But I I would disagree with you on the ceiling. My ceiling is 32 Cup, 30 Xfinity, 25 Truck. I think that should be your. That's what you should shoot for. Now you could go ARCA tw- or the Elite Series 20. I I, I don't care about that at that point. So I, I just think 32 should be cap. That way, that would remove a month off the schedule. You'd have a month more of off time, plain and simple. But it's really hard to say where this whole schedule is going to go. Uh, I was actually, <laughs> I'm one of the individuals that love schedule talk, but hearing news now, uh, I am actually kind of ticked, <laughs> say the least, kind of ticked. I mean, the biggest the biggest case that I'm going to make for where tracks are placed on the schedule is its location, the time of the year, and just doesn't make sense to even have it there at that time of the year. Atlanta in March it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I liked, honestly, it, it didn't belong on Labor Day weekend because that should always be Darlington's date. But, but it wasn't a bad show. On it Labor was not. Day. No, exactly. So... Having it in a warmer time period makes sense. Martinsville does not need to be in March. I'm sorry. It needs to be in April. It's too cold. Uh, Sonoma. Look at Sonoma this time of the year. It looks beautiful. 
Look at Sonoma in June. There's no grass. It's it, it, I, I guarantee you, if you saw Sonoma now, you'd be like, wait, Sonoma has grass? Yeah, they have grass this time of the year. You know why they don't in June? Because it's too hot and it doesn't rain. So run Sonoma in March. You know, have a road course in the first five races. That would spice it up. Uh, the West Coast Swing, I mean, you could add that in there with the West Coast Swing. I mean, that might make it a little long, but, I mean, they need to shake it up. If you're talking, you know, those hard tires, and how much downforce they have, the lack of power they have. Having a cold track with hard tires, that's not going to do you anything. No, it doesn't. To me, NASCAR's not utilizing their schedule to the to its potential, I would say. Now, to the north, you know, northern tracks like say a Watkins Glen or a Pocono or even on New Hampshire, yeah, they can only run certain months out of the year. I, I get that, but other tracks, like say a Martinsville or Atlanta, could really benefit from a little bit warmer of a date. Yeah, you know, run run the West Coast, run a little bit of the South, a little bit to where it's a little bit warmer. You know, yeah. I, I always say home. They all we always love to say Homestead's a great season finale, it'd also be a great opener as well. Like, I'm not saying like Daytona 500 in front of it, but say to March. follow up the 500, yeah. March and such like that. It's a good all year round. And there are other tracks NASCAR owns that they could go to, like say a Sebring or a or Road Atlanta. So it, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of done talking with the schedule. I'm, I'm just trying to fathom what I just read type of thing. <laughs> so, something that's got JP3 really fired up and you know, I, I agree with them definitely on this. The charter system. All right, John, what, what's got you all fired up about the charter system, buddy? What are you talking about? I'm fired up all the time. What's the last <laughs> second? But uh, the charter system, I just, ever since its inception in 2017, 18, I can't remember the exact date with Rob I believe Paul. it was 15. 15. 15, so, yes. Since its inception, uh, I've done the math. Actually, it's been three years. I th- 2016 was its start date. Okay. So since then, can you take a, ga- a guess how many times the Cup Series has had go or go home queue? Uh, since since the inception of the charter system. Yes, yeah, so that's 103 races. I will give you the amount of races. Uh, one time the Daytona 500. No, it's it's been more than that, but it's been 17 times. Oh, okay. So a little. A little over fifteen percent of the time, it's yikes. There's there's been go or go home. Now, if you want to say how many times has there been over forty three people, that's twice. That's Daytona five hundred both times since twenty sixteen. Uh, just the charter system itself just has me grinding gears based on the whole go or go home queue and looking at the health of other series such as the Xfinity series and the Truck series. I mean, the Xfinity series constantly last year. And this is sad to say, was getting more cars than the Cup Series. Only one time last year did the Xfinity Series have less than 40 cars start. And that was Texas, where they had 39. You compare that to Cup, I think it was race, I don't know, I think race 18 before they had three times where they had 40 cars. Or no, it was Charlotte. It was Charlotte was the third time that they had more than 40 cars, or at least 40 cars start a race. Now, I'm not saying the quality of the cars in the Xfinity series are great, but it's just 
it's pathetic. And even this year, we're seeing that only 36 cars are showing up. Martinsville, for instance, this week, 36 cars showed up. The Truck Series, which is known for having its budget issues, had 41 trucks attempt to qualify. What does that say for the health of your series when your top division is getting less entries than your bottom division of your top league, per se? Especially when you look at the financial sustainability of the truck series. You look at, you know, return on investment, you know, from, from a sponsorship standpoint. And when you look at, you know, how much those teams are actually making, if anything, uh, versus the cup series where you're definitely making money. It's kind of sad to see that the truck series is, is outpacing the cup series in car counts. Yeah, and that's partially to do with, you know, the easy bodies, uh, the spec motor by Ilmore, such like that. There are cost-saving measures now in place with the truck series. It just goes to show you that the cup series, you know, it's simple business, really. Barriers to entry, which is a business term. Basically, if you have something that is preventing you to get into this this field, per se, such as a charter system that puts you at a disadvantage for money, then what incentive do you have as a car owner, as a sponsor, anything, to running that said series? You just don't. So that's, that's my biggest thing that's grinding my gears about the charter system. It's funny when, when people bring up, well... You know, you look at the, the spec motors that Ilmore has, and you look at the, the composite bodies the Xfinity has. Now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, do trucks have composite bodies now as well? Um, I want to say yes, they do. Okay. Regardless, these measures that the Xfinity series and truck series are taking to save teams money, that's something you learn from. That's, I mean, it's setting an example that, you know, Cup Series is the highest level of competition. You don't need a silly aero package to try to bring the field together when you can take other cost measures, that's re which is really going to save them money, versus an aero package like that. I, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time talking about the charter system just because it, it irritates me too much to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's... I get why they did it. It was a defensive strategy for team owners. They were seeing people just fly fly off the map. They're just, you know, cars were leaving and businesses were closing. So instead of taking cost-cutting measures, they hoarded all the all of the money to these said franchisees. And it's pretty sad when, and I didn't mention this earlier, but whenever thirty-six cars show up. That's the chartered teams. That's it. There's no other, quote, open cars competing for a spot in the field. Well, and, and something that's worth pointing out, you know, if you're, if, you, if you're a car with a charter versus a car without a charter, say you finish 35th, the, the payout for finishing 35th as a charter car is much higher than if you were not a charter car. I don't know the exact difference between the two, but I because NASCAR doesn't release the payouts anymore. But there is a big difference in in winnings from having a charter versus not having a charter. 
Yeah, and it, it's it's just the plain old truth. I don't know why NASCAR doesn't release that information anymore. They said security reasons, but in true reality, they just didn't want us to show uh, fans uh, how how much dire straits they're truly in. Well, that's about the same time that they introduced the charter system, that they stopped releasing the earnings. They stopped releasing earnings, and they stopped releasing uh, attendance numbers as well. Yeah. yeah, NASCAR, what we I think all as fans, what we've all learned over the past couple of years is NASCAR's way of, in, in their words, fixing things is band-aiding things. It's or a band-aid. Breaking, or breaking it about 400 times and then... <laughs> And then putting band-aids on it, saying, hey, we fixed it. No, you just yeah. broke it more. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty done on, on that t- topic. I don't, I don't have much else to say because uh, there's nothing else you can say. You, you need to get rid of it. So, yeah, now that we've got that out of the way, the uh, eyesore, I think, of, of the evening. Um, stage racing, something that you brought up. To, to my attention, John, that I, I didn't really think about. Um, stage racing on short tracks and road courses. Uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting it, w- when you look at it the way you did. Kind of explain w- what you were telling me earlier. All right. So my basic thing is I'm, I'm complaining again. I have all night, so nothing new there. But uh, stage racing at short tracks and road courses. You know, stage racing is, you know, take it or leave it, uh, I'm not a fan. But definitely on short tracks and road courses, it is a deterrent to racing. It ruins any semblance of strategy calls whatsoever within a race. I mean, uh, one example I, I always look back on, if you look back at the mid-2000s, uh, short track race at, say, Bristol back when Bristol was Bristol. You would not know who was going to be in the best spot, or strategy-wise, at Bristol, until about 100 laps to go. Now, with stage racing, the same person is going to stay up front all day long, because they have a guaranteed caution at X lap, they have a guaranteed caution at X lap. So they have enough fuel to make it to at least... at least the stage yellow. At least the stage yellow for most tracks. And then on top of that, uh, the last stage, uh, they might have to make one green flag stop if they don't get a caution. So it, it just limits it to one dead strategy. There's no windows. There's no anything. It's just pit at this time, and that's it. There's no multiple pit stops where I could pit, where I could gain some time. No end. It's like a lot of people have been saying: track position, track position, track position, track position. And you know, track position is great. You know, you earn that track position, but you got to have some type of parity with the track position. Well, I'll play devil's advocate on this just to provide a different perspective. Okay. All right. So you know, track position. That's always been a short track thing. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to be 30th and in 50 laps be in the top five. Not at Martinsville, not at Bristol, not at Richmond. That's not something that you're going to see happen. 
Track position is always going to be important. Well, I'll counter this to you. Strategy call-wise. Uh, Strategy-wise, yeah, I agree with you completely. Back in 2003, Dennis Setzer uh, for Morgan Dollar Racing, the Axiom Chevrolet, won Martinsville this, whenever it was only one date. You know where he started in that race? Where? 33rd, when there was a 36-truck field. And won the race. So there was definitely strategy that was involved in getting him to the front. Yes, cautions fell his way. And and, and that was over the course of 250 laps, I believe. It was, I, yeah. Because at one point they had two races. I believe one was 200 laps and the other was 250. It is that. Or they just recently changed it to both were 250. Okay. I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I... I agree with you on some of that. It's just um, there's other points that you made where it, it's just a product of short track racing or this or this cup package. I, one thing that I think is a big contributing factor is this universal cup package. Why do we have to run hard tires at Martinsville, especially hard left sides? If the tires aren't degrading, then there's no fall off, which means, uh, I mean, really, you're kind of stagnant. You know, there's no saving tires and, and being good on the long run. It's it's go right now. And, you know, like Chase Elliott was running, what was it, like almost a whole lane up the last five laps and was making a huge diamond off the corner and is catching Keselowski. If that was the old, if that was the old package, forget about it. It's not happening. Yeah, absolutely. But... <laughs> It, it comes down to, you know, this is another issue we don't talk about. Maybe in another episode we can talk about it. But just NASCAR or Goodyear's inability to plan. I'm sorry, there are some. They they produce a decent tire, but they just don't know how to plan for anything. Ever since Indy 2008, they've come up with the, the hardest tire known to man that lasts 85, 90 laps. It seems like at every single track. You know, they're like a Pirelli with F1. There's no degradation, no anything. And they don't do enough testing. I mean, this rules package, we knew about it for what? How many months? I mean, it was several months after Charlotte. Yeah. Like the first Charlotte race, which is when they ran a similar package in the All-Star race. I believe it was towards the end of the season, maybe in the playoffs that they announced that. And there were talks... Oh, there was talks before that, yeah. And there were talks before that, and Goodyear should have been communicating with NASCAR, what are we doing next year, so we can get a tire that's race. I mean, Goodyear would have known it before we did. Yeah, exactly. So. Goodyear is an internal partner. They should know this stuff there. And they've, they've ha they have thousands upon thousands of races of data to institute a tire that can work. So it's just, it's getting to the point where they just don't want another Indianapolis to happen. Well, there's two things that I look at. If you're looking all the way back to Indy 08, where it started, okay, there's two things I look at. So, for one thing, in the 90s, and even before the 90s, really, they had competing tires. Like, they had Hoosier to deal with at, at one point. To yeah. me, I, you strive to be a better brand in a sport when you are competing with somebody. 
So think of it from an engine standpoint. If Ford is the only engine provider in the Cup Series, if they're the only manufacturer, it doesn't matter how good their engine is. As long as it can last the race, that's all that matters. But if there's Toyota and Chevrolet in the race, you're going to you're, you're trying to be the best one out there. You're, you're trying to sell yourself so that people will be on your side. So they had Hoosier to deal with. And, you know, they kind of ran Hoosier out. But, so one I, could, but one could argue that that was a really messy era. Yeah, it there, was. There was it, it Injuries a, and fatalities. Uh, it became yeah. a, a safety hazard to why they went with Goodyear as the primary supplier of tire. So that, I, I could see why they did it. I could see why it would be a good idea. But holding them accountable is something that should be happening. Right. Another thing that I look at is they went from the Gen 4, which I believe was instituted in 1994. They had that until 2007. That's a long period of time to have a car. So you had, I mean, they, I, I don't know this for sure. I could be completely wrong. But they, for all we know, they could have ran the same base for their tires, same formula, if you want to call it that, for who knows how long. I will not, I will say that that's not true, because okay. because 2004 2003 they were starting to complain about how hard the tires were, and Goodyear I think 2005 or six they introduced a really soft tire, and what was the highest rating ratings year of NASCAR? Oh five. Oh five, and they introduced a new tire then, which produced amazing racing. Now I will say. Um... Even if they did change the tire throughout that time of the Gen 4, they still had the same chassis to deal with. You know, aerodynamically, aer excuse me, aerodynamically, that car changed a little bit over the course of its existence. But the chassis was the same. It was the Gen 4 car. That, you had that whole span of time to deal with. Yeah, and I think part of the reason is, is I think this fault. You know, we love to, I love to blame Goodyear. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's NASCAR's fault. I mean, every time you turn around, rules change. Rules change. Rules change. Yeah. How many times did they honestly change the package as aggressive as they do the past, I'd say, 10 years? Yeah. They didn't. They, didn't. they, they took baby steps. There's Wait. two things that I'll say on that, and I'll leave it at that. Financially... Goodyear can't keep up with it. If, I'm sorry. If you have any brand that has to keep up with all these changes, you can't do it. And another thing that I'll say on NASCAR's part, if you keep the package the same for so long, teams are going to be able to catch up with you. So not only is, is, is Goodyear behind, but the teams are behind because they're always trying to learn where, where they can gain from. And if you keep the package the same for so long, people are going to get on the same level playing field or a similar level playing field to where you're going to have that parity again. But when you're always changing it, the best teams are going to benefit from it. No doubt. That, that's all I'm going to say about that. I, I, I completely agree. The, whenever you make massive change after massive change after massive change, your big teams are going to benefit the most of it. Now, unless you're doing something like IndyCar has done, which 
You know, they should be your gold standard when it comes to making the right oh, changes. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, look at their racing. I mean, like we mentioned in Stop and Go, there, there was an 18-year-old rookie that won in his third ever start. When's the last time NASCAR had a rookie, you know, that was running for the championship win in his, you know, in his, like, fifth start? They had Trevor Bain, which he was not running for points, but it was on a plate track win the Daytona 500. They had Harvick win Atlanta in 2001, uh, which you can make the speculation, well, you know, it was emotional for the team. They were emotionally driven to win that race. Blah, blah, blah. You can't take away the fact that he won the race. I believe that was his fourth start, third start. Yeah, something like that, yeah. I mean, so it's been that long. It's been that long. So I And mean, Kyle Larson didn't do it. Chase Elliott didn't do it. No. Ryan Blaney didn't do it. All household names in, in the Cup Series now. Yeah, I mean, Chris Buescher was the last rookie to win, but he was doing it because of the whole Kyle Busch injury. Yeah. So, or no, maybe it wasn't the Kyle Busch injury, but still. No, it, that was that was a rain race. Yeah, that was a rain race. So, yeah, a rookie hasn't won on all-out speed and God knows how long. Time. Yeah, I, I I like the fact that you brought up IndyCar as the gold standard because that kind of helps us transition to our last topic for the night: IndyCar at Coda. Ooh man, there's a lot to talk about. I, I'm kind of surprised more people didn't complain about the lack of yellows because I was, I mean, the race was great. Don't get me wrong. The race was fantastic. But usually when you have a race like that where there's no yellows, no wrecks, no spins, no off-track excursions relatively, uh, you get those people that are like, wow, that was boring. It was I'm better sorry. than any Toronto race in the last 20 years. I'm sorry. Toronto, that shit should be gone. But that's another topic for another day. But Code had produced some pretty good racing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the leaders were within, what, five seconds of one another? Most Top of three was within four seconds of each other at the finish. The, race, the racing was great. I mean, don't get, like, the racing was fantastic. Will Power led most of the race. I think he was just the strongest car. I don't think you could take that away from him. And then the yellow fell, and then he had the electronic issue. Yeah. And that handed the race to Colton Herta because he had already pitted. But off speed alone, Colton Herta was a podium car regardless. So you can't take that away from him. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, I love Bourdais, but it wasn't like somebody like Bourdais sneaking there like yeah. last year at St. Pete. Yeah. But still, and I didn't agree with uh, Power's comments about how they closed pit road and how it, it's a crapshoot whenever you close pit road. To me, it's it's more of a safety issue at that yeah. point. So I yeah, I mean, Rosenquist was sitting there at pit entrance. You had to close pit road. Yeah, exactly. So it's not something that could have just been done. But either way, I, I don't agree with the whole aspect. It, it's a safety hazard either way. Definitely. So, you know, it used to be where it was a live pit whenever Caution came out. But, you know... It, it was part of this. It really limited strategy. Oh, you got a ca lucky caution. There you go. You're you're set to go. Yeah. But with with that, you know, it, it's a risk now that you take on. You know, yeah, they could say, well, it creates parity, and parity's bad. But I don't know. So so the racing was great. Uh, one hot topic was track limits. All right. So uh, this is gonna get me fired up. I know. 
Circuit of the Americas, as a lot of you know, has a lot of runoff. And that runoff is asphalt. And it's painted asphalt on top of that. There's a lot of, um, people could call it abuse, a lot of uh, exploitation of track limits uh, on Sunday afternoon. A lot of guys using the runoff to be able to make a wider corner to kind of carry their momentum better. And it led to some interesting action. It actually led to Felix Rosenquist getting wrecked by James Hinchcliffe. 100% Hinchcliffe's fault. But if track limits weren't a problem there, that wreck probably wasn't going to happen. Or at least wasn't as fast of a wreck. Because, uh, you know, you also have to look at it at it from a safety aspect. I, I blame Coda 100% on that just because... What's the point in having runoffs that are complete parking lots when you could have just had natural terrain? It complete, you don't have to worry about policing people. On Oh, well, he, he dipped his left sides off in the paint. That's, that's exploiting track limits. He needs a drive through. No, like, if it's grass, they wreck. If they go off track. If it's grass, they wreck. I blame I blame that more on the FIA than yeah. than say Coda, because uh, Tiki he built the track or he designed the track. The FIA wants it to where they want ludicrous amounts of runoff area. Everything has to be paved and this and that. Do I agree with that? No, no. There shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It's more where... of a safety hazard, honestly. Well, yeah, and and all of it all it does is encourage you to run out there. And I think it's dumb to tell drivers, well, you're just going to have to stop doing that. How about this? How about you just make grass there, like there was any other time? It might not be, quote, as safe. Well, then use gravel. I'll argue with you that having grass would be more safe than asphalt. Because they paint that asphalt. If it rains... It's slick. Painted asphalt, I would argue, is more slippery than grass. Yeah. So that's one, that's just, uh, man, I, yeah, I knew I'd get fired up about this, but. And uh, there were a lot of people in the F1 community that were like, man, this is just so unnormal to see this. And, and what are they doing? It was IndyCar's discretion on whether or not they wanted to enforce track limits. They said, have at it. And they were completely right for doing so. I think it produced a better racing overall. If they wanna, if they wanna combat that though, put a strip of grass along the exit of all those corners that they exploited, and there you go. You don't have a problem with that in any racing series that goes there. That's just you gotta do that. So I'm honestly, uh, we had a lot to talk about this week. I think it was uh, a lot going on in motorsports this week. It was great to see the IndyCar Classic at. Circuit of the Americas be a great success story, not just for Colton Herter, but the race in general. It was a huge success in its inaugural running. Yep, uh, NASCAR, once again, gave us a lot to talk about, uh, not necessarily for the better, but... <laughs> they always give us excellent talking points because it's kind of like Donald Trump and political pundits. They just keep giving us fuel to burn that fire. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's going to wrap it up for the Pit Limiter podcast. Uh, John, tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Okay, well, you can find me at 
John Poole the third on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at JS Poole III. And if you'd like, I do have a gaming channel, JP3 Gaming. Uh, you can find that on YouTube and JP3 Gaming 56 on Twitch. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ZBCannon4. Make sure you follow my kart racing page on Facebook. We're getting the racing season started this weekend in karting. We're going out to Gateway, actually, uh, to race in the Ignite series. So make sure you follow my page at Zach Buchanan Racing. And uh, I also upload videos to my karting channel on YouTube as well. Uh, that's just my name, Zach Buchanan, so check that out as well. Make sure you guys follow the Pit Limiter podcast on Twitter at the Pit Limiter. Make sure you like us on Facebook at the Pit Limiter Podcast. And make sure you follow us or subscribe to us on YouTube. We upload episodes there as well. We're on all platforms that you can listen to podcasts on. So make sure if you're not listening to us on Facebook or YouTube that you check us out on one of the podcast apps. Signing off for now. We'll see you guys next week on the Pit Limiter Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.